Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans. We'll have a more extended reading than our sermon text this evening. Our reading will be starting in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And then we'll flip over to chapter 3 and we'll start reading in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. But we'll be focusing in on verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3. So beginning our reading, though, in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law... Will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law in circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And skipping down to verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge, comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the, un who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. <clears throat> As we continue through our series in Romans, paying particular attention to the theme of the body, we come to a, another passage in which the body is prevalent as a theme, or at least present as a theme in our text. As we think about this, we also think about the theme of boasting, which has shown up in our reading. Those who would make their boast in the law, those who would use their mouths to deceive, and then the, uh, those mouths being silenced by God, or by the law, which God has given. And then ultimately the boasting that is excluded by the law of faith. And so we can recognize that as humans, we are often tempted to boast, and we are often tempted to boast in our bodies. And this can take any number of forms. For those who are athletes, this will often take the form of how skilled they are in their sport of choice. We even have a, a phrase in English that designates this particular kind of boasting. We call it trash talk. When two athletes are competing against each other and they're, they're going up against each other, they will egg each other on, uh, denigrating the opponent, saying, I'm better than you in some kind of way. And the underlying premise behind all of that is, is that I'm, I have the better body, I have the more disciplined body, I have the more well-trained body, and I am, in this sport, going to have the mastery over you. But there are other kinds of bodily boasting that can take place. For the person that Paul seems to be interacting with in chapter 2, it's a boasting in the mark that he carries in his flesh, the mark of circumcision. That this is his boast. That he has the law and he has received in the imprint of the law in a bodily way, in his flesh. He has been circumcised. And that this becomes his boast. Look at what I have. Look at what has been done to my body. And look at what good terms this puts me on with God. Still further, there is the temptation to boast in the actions of the body. In the moral use of the body. Look at what I have never done with my body. Look at how pristine my body is because I have avoided these kinds of sins. Look at how glorious my body is. 
all such boasting is silenced by God's law. No body will be justified by the works of the law. But anybody may be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody and no body will be justified through the works of the law. The law silences all such boasting in the flesh. But the good news is that anybody can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's take up those two ideas this evening. First, that nobody will be justified by the works of the law. And then secondly, that anybody may be justified by faith in Christ. As we look in chapter 3 at Paul's description, his, he's concluding this section in which he is demonstrating the universal condition of mankind as being one of under sin. He is wrapping up his argument, and he is pulling on uh, several passages from the Psalms and one passage from Isaiah to demonstrate his point of mankind's condition as being under sin. And as he does so, notice that he is using elements that, that draw out uh, a description of the body. And we can call this the law's assessment of the bodies that are under the law. And so look with me at verses 13 and following, and notice all of the references to uh, the body parts of those who are under the law and what the law has to say about their bodies. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then looking down to verse 20, Paul makes a concluding statement, which is very similar to a statement which we also find in the Psalms. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Or, more literally, all flesh will not be justified. And so we have here Paul drawing on uh, citations from the Old Testament that allude to or mention the body, the law's assessment of the bodies of those who are under the law. And so let's, let's consider this assessment that the law makes. Going back to verse 13, look at the, the pattern of of the direction of the body parts that are mentioned. It begins with the throat, but then it moves up to the tongue, and then to the lips, and then the mouth. And it's as though as Paul is going through this description, there is a spewing of wickedness from within outward. Consider also the, the larger scope of the body parts that Paul mentions. That after having named the various parts of the mouth, he jumps down in verse 15 to their feet. In verse 16 and 17, he uh, very closely associated with the, pe with the feet are the paths that the feet walk on. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. And then verse 18, back up to 
the head to the eyes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If this were a scene in a movie, it would begin with a close-up on the mouth or on the, the neck and the mouth of a wicked person. And then it would pan down to their feet, and then it would shoot back up to their head. And it would show you, twice over, from head to toe, and then back to the head again, this person is spewing wickedness. Their throats are open graves. An open grave is ready to receive a corpse that is laid into it. These wicked persons, through their lies, are uh, bringing about the death, and it's like they are ready to swallow up their victims with their wickedness. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, say, ah, and he takes a look inside of the throat. So the law comes to the wicked person, and it says, say, ah, and it makes an assessment open grave. The tongues of the wicked deceive. The lips of the wicked are described as um, having the venom of asps. A description more closely tied to uh, Satan and the serpent than to any form of righteousness. And then the mouth in its entirety is also described. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Moving to the feet, we find that these are Olympic-level athletes. They are swift. They enter a race, they enter a competition, and they run very, very well. But the finish line is the opportunity to murder someone. And, and there is, it's very difficult to run faster than those who are described here. They are running full haste to shed blood. And the paths that they walk on are empty of peace. Rather, they are filled with destruction and misery on the crooked paths that they walk. And before their eyes, there is no fear of God. As they look at the world around them and as they interpret the world around them, there is no no fear of the Lord which would govern or restrict their behavior. Now notice that as Paul is making this assessment or describing the law's assessment of the wicked, that his conclusion which follows from this is one of universal condemnation that this is describing that he reaches a conclusion of all mankind being under this condition. Consider how he introduces that, that section in verse 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then going to the end of it in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
conclusion of universal condemnation based on the law's assessment of the wicked and of their condition. <clears throat> A couple of observations based on, on our, our discussion so far. The first is that possessing the law does not protect the wicked from its condemnation. In chapter 2, we have that Jew that Paul is interacting with who is boasting in the law, who is taking confidence in the flesh, but who is still committing all of those same sins which he knows the law condemns. But he thinks he's okay. The law and I have an agreement with each other. I've been instructed by the law. I know what the law teaches. I know what the law says is good. I know what the law condemns. But I have the law. I have the mark of the law in my flesh. So it's okay. And I can teach others about what the law says. And Paul is making clear that that is not going to do you any good to have that outward work of the law in your life while you are still producing and spewing wickedness, while you are still stealing, while you're still committing adultery, while you're still robbing temples. Imagine somebody who uh, took their uh, learner's permit test, and they knew all of the rules of the road. They, they scored, they aced the exam. They know exactly what the laws of Ohio say about operating an automotive vehicle. But then they get in the car and they drive without their parent or another adult over the age of 18. They drive left of center. They fail to use their turn signal. They blaze through stop signs. And finally, they get pulled over by a police officer. And the teenage driver says, but it's okay. I know what the law says. I've been instructed by the law. That doesn't protect you from the, the condemnation that the law is going to pronounce on you for breaking the law. A, a, a fleshly uh, formation of the law on your body isn't going to shield you from the wrath that the law brings. There, was a, uh, <clears throat> there is a well-known pastor who many, many years ago was giving a, a talk, a sermon to a group of youth and he was describing the, the, uh, the problem of nominal Christianity within America and the problem of hypocrisy among those who profess to be Christians but, but who are not. And at one point, uh, as he was particularly impassioned, the audience began to clap for him. And he responded by saying, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. It was a very sobering moment as as the audience began to realize that he was addressing them. Well, in a sense, this is sort of what's going on in, in our passage. Paul is saying, why are you applauding yourselves for having the law? Why are you boasting that you have received the mark of the law in your flesh when the law is talking about you when it says there is none righteous, not even one? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Why are you boasting that you have the law 
when the law pronounces condemnation against you. But we can also observe that it's the law is has a, has a, a weakness to it in that it doesn't produce a righteousness among those who have the law. Raw law, we can say, does not create righteous people. It may restrain wickedness in an outer way, and that is a good thing, but ultimately that is a ministry of death. But the law itself is not able to produce a, a righteousness in those who are under it. If law possession, or if, if having the law, being instructed in the law, were enough to produce righteousness, why is it still, after a millennia of Israel having it, still pronouncing condemnations against sin? Why hasn't Israel as a nation become the most holy and righteous nation on earth? It would be like having a, a dog that the family had purchased, and this dog is a terror to the household, refusing to learn obedience, refusing to be trained, tearing up, eating the furniture, refusing to be house trained, uh, getting into all sorts of trouble, eating all sorts of foods from the pantry, and so you send it to an obedience. And then the dog comes back, and he's just as bad as he was when he went in. not a perfect analogy. We are, are humans who have souls that are uh, unregenerate, needing to be regenerate through the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's not a perfect analogy with a dog, but you would come to the conclusion that the obedience school that you sent your dog to wasn't getting the job done. And as we look over the Old Testament history of Israel, they had the law, they had a a society in which the law was supposed to be maintained. And yet there was a failure for the, uh, in aggregate across the whole of the people of Israel for the law to produce a righteousness. Instead, it is left with this assessment. Guilty, wicked, be quiet. Stop your mouth and acknowledge the righteousness of God. So no flesh will be justified by the law. Every mouth silenced. Everyone who makes their boasts in the flesh and what the law has done to their flesh or what they've done with their own bodies, whether that's in a overtly physical way or whether it's in the moral use of their bodies, the law will ultimately come down with this assessment. Every mouth must be silenced and acknowledge the righteousness and the holiness of God. But your body, your flesh, will not be justified through the law. But if that's the case... What hope is there if there is no justification through the law, if all flesh stands condemned by the law? What can be done? 
brings us to the good news that anybody can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That there is a gift of perfect righteousness given in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. And this is sheer gift. To be received by faith. The freest gift ever given. And it's through this one that we are justified. It's through this one that we are accounted righteous before God. And it's this one who is able to produce in us the commencement of sanctification and who is able to bring that work to completion in the life to come. And so what applications can we make from this? <clears throat> As I have mentioned and alluded to, we must have our mouths silenced when it comes to boasting in ourselves, when it comes to boasting in our accomplishments and the things that we have done. And as I mentioned in, in the opening, there are all kinds of ways that we might seek to boast in the flesh, in ourselves. It could be through sports. Look at how fast I am. Look at how much weight I can lift. Does that justify you before God? Does that give you a, a right standing with the Lord? How trivial. Look at this mark that I have received in my flesh. Look at all of these ascetic practices that I have undertaken. Is that the kind of sacrifice that is pleasing to God? Look at how well I have lived my life. Look at the obedience that I have rendered to God. Surely he will be pleased with it. Surely that will satisfy him. We must be silenced when we think about boasting in those things. But then our mouths may be opened again as we make our boast in Jesus Christ as we make our boast in the one whose body went to the tree, as we make our boast in the one in whom or on whom God condemns sin in the flesh. It's Jesus Christ who takes upon himself the due consequences, the due penalty of this godless description of the wicked that we have read in verses uh, 10 through 18, as we read about this description of the Psalms and the wicked, Jesus Christ becomes a curse, so that we who are by nature wicked might be forgiven, that we might have that free gift of life in Jesus Christ. To be clear, 
the wicked that are described in those verses does not apply to Jesus. Jesus was perfect and without sin. And yet the law's judgment upon sin, that judgment of death, that judgment of a cursed death, one in which uh, the, the, the uh, executed is nailed to a tree, Christ takes that on himself for you. So that you might make your boast in Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that as we further contemplate his work for us, what he has done, how he is the sin-bearer who has taken away our sin, that we would be humbled, that we would not regard ourselves, but that we would regard our Savior. We pray that we would not regard our neighbor with disdain, that we would recognize that we ourselves are those who have received the gift of your righteousness freely, and that we would desire to see others come to that free possession of your Son, Jesus Christ, as well. We pray this in his name.